This is Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender experience and perspective. I'm your host, Amy Breslow. Each week, I invite a different guest to share their personal experiences regarding gender and gender issues. This podcast is recorded at my kitchen table and may contain sounds of life from my home and neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Episode 3. My guest today is Chloe, who identifies herself as an openly transgendered woman and prefers the pronouns she and her. Chloe, welcome. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here as well. I have a series of questions that I usually ask my guests, and these are really just meant to spark conversation. And if there's something that you want to say that I'm not specifically asking, I also invite you to go down that road. Okay. Um, My first question is, when in your life did you first become aware of gender roles? Oh, goodness, right from the very beginning. I mean, my father was in the military, in the Marine Corps of all the military branches. is incredibly gender-specific as to what women are supposed to do. I think one of the most interesting moments of that, though, was when we lived in New Orleans. My dad was a recruiter for the Marine Corps at that time, head of the recruitment part. And I was in first grade. (laughs) And he took me to meet one of his colleagues in the French Quarter who was a woman Marine. And it just blew me away that there could be such a thing as a woman Marine. And I was absolutely transfixed to think that this is something that women can do. And I was also, I think I was really moved by the respect that my father showed her. And that's something that is more of an adult reflection on, you know, unpacking that. But I I have to interpret it as that was what was going on, because it's just such a clear memory to me. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was a teacher, and she was an incredibly well-educated woman, two master's degrees, very, very um, hard-driving, energetic, committed teacher. But she could have been anything she wanted to be. And her options, her father was a general in the Marine Corps, so her options were very clearly told to her. She could either go to finishing school or, or university, at least she said that option. But after university, she could either be a nurse or a teacher. That was all that he would allow her as a possible set of options. And I can remember, again, very early on feeling, that's unfair, that's just not right. And it also, you know, I was much closer to my mom than to my I was like her shadow and so that was something that I often thought about is why is he out there with all the medals on his chest and getting all the publicity and she's here doing all this other work as well as teaching and he would come home I loved my father but he would come home and have his martini and read his newspaper and she raised five kids and she worked all day long teaching came home cooked dinner you know we all had our chores to do but she did, you know, so much more around the house than my father did. And right from the youngest days, I remember us feeling that that's not right. Did you ever say anything to your mother? Did you ever comment <laughs> upon it? I, not until my teenage years. Remember, this is when the Equal Rights Amendment came out. And I started really getting into reading about feminist literature, such as it was in those days. And particularly in my first couple of years of college. I mean, I was a really radical feminist, along with my girlfriend at the time. 
And we used to have these really, really long and often heated discussions with my parents and their friends about feminism. And they were very conservative folk. And um, my mom was always kind of on the fence, not quite wanting to say stop, but at the same time always being the hostess and sensing the, the discomfort of the rest of the people in the room. And so there was... I don't know. I mean, it didn't stop us. You know, my girlfriend, Beej was her nickname. Beej and I would still carry on. And occasionally we could just see my mom say, time to stop. Yeah. yeah. But no, this has been something that was uh, I was aware of. I had, you know, three brothers and my sister was the last one in the family. So again, growing up in a household of boys and then finally having a girl raised all kinds of different perceptions. Thank you. You mentioned that you... I don't know if you formally studied feminism or you just read it on your own, but what in your personal life brought you to be interested in studying gender or studying feminism? Well, I think just the percept, you know, lots and lots of things. Um, I, I didn't formally study gender until I was well into my adulthood years. I guess living in Africa more than anything, where I saw the role stru- structure so rigid and at that time, being married to a woman who was a, a landscape architect and was trying to establish her own career in a space that was just not set up for women to have their own career, especially in a, a new profession that which nobody gave much credit to, watching her battle and watching just in those very traditional patriarchal societies what women had to put up with and knowing that I didn't have to deal with that. I was still embodied as a man. It was not something I had to deal with at all. And I was really aware of it. I mean, that was just the day-to-day reality. Why is Melanie having to do this? And why am I not? In fact, one of the most telling examples of that was I went down to, I think, pick up a driver's license or something like that. And I had signatory rights on her business check a checking account and for whatever reason I took her check and went down to pay for this and they said oh we don't take checks and I said but there's a sign right there that says you do and they said well that's just business checks and I said this is a business check and then he looks at the notice and said oh we don't take women's business checks so (laughs) it was like it blew me away it absolutely blew me away that here it is as black and white as it can get you are just trying to stand in the way of your women in this country getting any chance to get away when they can't even spend money. <laughs> but I was so incensed and outraged, as was my want in those days. Um, you know, I was I was much more so than, than Melanie was. She's just gotten inured to a lot of that treatment because women grow up with that. And I hadn't really seen that before. That's something I, I hope we talk about it a little bit more in the conversation it's true when you grow up with certain things, they just become the norm. And to see it differently, I, I would love if you have if you have more to say on that topic. I I would love to hear it. Sure. What issues around gender do you confront in your workplace, or is it a non-issue for you? Well, it's it's not a non-issue. I mean, it's a it's an odd issue because now I'm in a workplace that's about literary, about creative writing, and. What's interesting is the historical perspective on that field, because until relatively recently, and extremely recently in historical terms, that was a field that was entirely dominated by men. And suddenly, you know, we have 33,000 members and 65% of them are women. 
and the ones who are winning so many awards now are women. I mean, women are really making their place in creative writing now. And I look back on the history of creative writing and English literature. That's that's not what the history is. This is a, a massive turnaround in the entire history of humanity. Suddenly women are writing. And I can't stop but thinking about that. I see pushback. I hear pushback from men. And I'm not patient with that. It's like, you guys have had your chance. Let's have let women have some space now. And men that push back saying, you know, you're trying to cut us out. And it's like, it's not even about you. This is not about men. This is about women finding a space. Women writing sometimes just for women. And that's okay. We don't actually have to write for men. Even though still largely the publishers are controlled by men, there's still a lot of patriarchy in the publishing world. But, you know, this is a different space now. Mm -hmm. It really is. And so I'm looking at those kinds of changes pretty often. Um, mostly my recent work around gender has been working with women's groups on a whole bunch of international development issues around gender and human rights. And the gender piece of that that comes out to me so strikingly is the men aren't there. I have these meetings on really, really critically important issues like child brides and like violence against women and on and on and on. And I'm in rooms of women talking to women about women. It's like men just don't show up with a few exceptions. They're just not there. Why? Why? What? What's? Why is it okay for men to be, in some cases, the perpetrators? And by you know, 98% of the violence against women is perpetrated by men. And their men are not in the room when it comes to talking about solutions to that. Half of the you know parents of these girls that are being essentially sold off, if you will, by dowries and whatever into child marriages, half their parents are men. Where are those dads? You know, where are the men that are concerned about those dads in developing countries? Where's, I mean, that's the voices that have to come through. And I'm, it just drives me nuts. Like, mm -hmm. why are we not important enough as human beings to warrant your time, gentlemen, to be in the middle of this conversation too? It's not a women's issue. It's a human dignity issue. I'll just ask this. Why do you think the men are not there? Well, I can say with some authority, because <laughs> I've been in that space. I mean, I wasn't a, a man, actually, but I was, for all outward appearances, a man. I was physically a man. I was in those conversations. I was in those meetings. Why it happens is because we, as women, just don't come up. We're just not simply on the agenda. It's not something that men, in my experience, and it's just anecdotal, but it's just, it just doesn't come up. Mm -hmm. It's just not important. It simply isn't on the, the to-do list. So men, I mean, I had this conversation at my former employer, Freedom House, saying, you're just not giving nearly enough focus to, to women. And their attitude was, well, there's other organizations that do that. Given your unique background, I am curious if there are other work situations where gender came up or gender played a role. And I, I, I don't have specific questions to ask you about, but I just imagine as an architect, what was it like in that world versus in the NGO world that you've just shared with me now? 
Well, architecture, I mean, almost all my practice was in Britain and in Africa, and that's in both countries, particularly in Africa, of course, but in both environments, it was a very male-dominated profession, and it still remains that way, although women have made a big, big inroad, in, in certainly in Europe and the States. Africa, not so much. There's space for some women. There are women that are in that space, but nothing like an appropriate number of women. Even in my architecture school at Syracuse University, the women were really looked down upon. There was a real a clear bias against the women. They were just, you know, the way they were dressed, the, almost all the, actually all. It's funny, I never thought about it till now. Every professor I had was male. There wasn't a single woman in, at, at that school at that time. And I can remember feeling a real, again, it's funny that I hadn't really thought of this before, but feeling a real empathy with the women in the way that they were being treated by others and just being seen as kind of fluffy, as something that, you know, if you want to spend your time here and spend your money, that's fine, but, you know, this is serious business. So all the way through, it's been a hard field for women to get into, you know, all those technical fields with all these hard things like concrete and steel and, you know, beams and all. It's just, there's just a macho thing about it, you know. Um, I didn't feel that, that it was a huge impediment for women if they were really strong, but they had to be the ones always in, you know, pushing their agenda. They couldn't expect that the field itself was going to be open to them unless they were themselves pushing quite hard. And, you know, it took that kind of a woman in that space to be able to claim that space and be taken seriously. And there were a few. There were a few that were really remarkable that way. But no, not a, not a kind of space that felt good for me. We are in the midst of a very rich time around gender issues and women's issues. And there's a conversation going on right now that was not, I mean, just even a few years ago, we weren't talking the way that we're talking today. What do you think is possible now that was not possible just even, say, a few years ago? One word, accountability. I think that's the huge difference right now. Women are just saying enough is enough. In fact, enough was enough centuries ago, but we're, we're basically saying no. This, is, this has got to stop. This is time for people to be held accountable. We are dignified human beings. Treat us that way. End of story. There really is nothing else to it. And it's remarkable to see how how empowering this is to see women do that and see men realize that this is not bluff. This is actually women showing real solidarity and saying no. Thank you. I love your answer. <laughs> no, I, I, I love your answer. Do you have any goals or dreams that you chose not to pursue? And if you do, do you think gender played a role in any of your decisions? I don't think so. I mean, I, I kind of have pursued too many dreams, if anything. <laughs> I've had, you know, probably six different careers in my lifespan so far, which is problematic in multiple levels, but it's where I've been led, I feel. I don't feel like I've, you know, felt constrained in my dreams except by money. And it's really hard to have any, you know, things I would like to do would be a lot more writing. Um, there, I would love to be able to learn other languages. I would like to be able to get engaged in other cultures. That's what really excites me. All of that's pretty much impossible unless you've got a lot of secure income and revenue, and that's not been my life. 
And it's very, you know, often not the case for transgender people. We live really disrupted lives. So there isn't such a thing as retirement for trans people by and large. There isn't such a thing as a healthy bank account. So it's kind of, you know, it's not as bad as survival in my case. I've, I've managed to be pretty resilient. But, you know, the bigger dreams are the dreams that are pursuing your own passion where you have some kind of financial backing. And that's just never been a possibility for me. Can I ask you to say a little bit more as to why is that so challenging for trans people? You mentioned just having a disrupted life. Could you yeah. say a few more words about that? Well, yeah. I mean, the statistics are pretty clear. There are not that many statistics about trans people, but there are a few. And the surveys that were done by the National Center for Transgender Equality just show that trying to get an, any employment as a trans person is unbelievably harder than it is for a, a cisgender person person who's not transgender yeah it's if you have what you know it's four times harder is the actual figures so that's really tough it's hard enough being a woman over in my case over 60 looking for work but to be a woman who's also transgender is you might as well shoot yourself i mean it's just really really hard the the hiring decisions for senior people and that's where i'm at right now in my career are still predominantly made by men, and men my generation get totally freaked out by the notion of transgender women. Um, they just don't deal with it at, at all. It's, I see heartening signs of younger generations being much more open to addressing this, both men and women, but that's not my story. I mean, my story is dealing with men in their 60s making corporate decisions, and they're not having it. So. It's a really hard hill to climb. I can get, you know, I can do the gig stuff. I can get consulting work. But I inevitably run into the, you know, the decision makers who are men. And I just almost know from the outset, this is a waste of time. It's not going to happen. And I, you know, not to bang my drum, but I'm really good at what I do. And, it, you know, it's, it's clear from the results of what I do. People are always impressed by it, but it's not enough. Chloe, as someone who has worked with you, I will bang your drum as well. You are excellent at what you do, truly. Thank truly. you. Thank you. I can say that from from the academic as well as the, the, the technical Thank uh, you. perspective. You know, Chloe, just um, I have no idea who's going to be listening to this podcast. So just for those who might be listening who are not familiar, could you please just describe when you talk about being a trans person, what do you mean by that? Well, it's a, it's a, I mean, that's almost a, too big of a question. Um, transgender people live lives that are very hard for other people to relate to. I'm just thinking of my son right now, who's not transgender, but who's in West Africa finishing his Peace Corps assignment and so excited about his experiences there and so looking forward to coming back here and telling everybody about them and I've had to warn them that people are not going to be interested because they can't relate. It's just something that they can't really relate to. Well, there's part of that that happens for transgender people, but it's exacerbated by the fact that you are challenging a fundamental building block of society throughout all of history, and that's the gender binary. And people's maps of their worlds, their respective you know world perceptions, are so anchored in male and female and, you know, damn it all, stay there. The idea that somebody could navigate that space in between and even all the way to the other side is very, is fundamentally, I don't know, it's fundamentally challenging to their worldview. 
It's unsettling for so many people. They don't quite know what to do with me. Mm-hmm. And it's not just men, and it's men and women. And I always, I find a lot more receptivity, significantly more from women than from men. But I've become almost a little suspicious of that recently, not in any pernicious way. But it's like you're being too embracing of me. You have to understand that as much as I identify as a woman, and I do, and as much as I love being Chloe and just Chloe, not always having to carry that transgender label around with me because I get by just fine in the world. Most people have no idea that I'm trans. But I was never a girl. So I have a really different life experience than other women who grew up as girls. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, girls get really a lot of crap thrown at them by society. I had all sorts of freedom as an embodied young boy to do things and have liberties that girls simply weren't allowed to do. But at the same time, I was always doing that in a space that was very uncomfortable for me. I, you know, I just wasn't ever at home in that body and fought that fight internally for five decades before I finally found help to see what was going on. And, you know, that's the journey of transgender people is to be in bodies that do not work for them and finding that lack of fit more and more egregious with every passing day and getting to a point where it's simply not sustainable anymore. And at that point, you either take your life or you find a solution. And the other, the really only solution is to live your authentic life. And I, you know, I, I'm, it almost sounds flipped the way I said that, but when I said take your life, we have the highest suicide rate of any demographic in the world. That's how hard it is. This is not a choice. This is not a lifestyle. This is survival. But it's also discovery. You know, you finally get to that space where we have now the medical and psychological wherewithal to counsel people and give them this medical interventions if you want them to get to that body <laughs> and I tell you I can't tell you how how happy I am in this body it's just like a blessing every single day that wasn't possible until the last 20 years for you know for people in general transgender people in general maybe there were a few pioneers that did it a little bit earlier but honestly, even 10 years ago, it was edgy when I transitioned. 10 years ago, there was no insurance coverage. There was no support at all. There were very few sources of information. I went through years of counselors who could not figure out what was going on with me until I finally found one who <laughs> figured it out. But, you know, this is the change. This is the change that's happened now that you can finally get to a place where people recognize that this is a real thing. They don't try to tell you you're crazy anymore, at least in this state or this area. They do in the middle of this country and most of the rest of the world. But you'll get a serious hearing from thoughtful people who have the right training if you're able to ask enough questions of the right people. It's, it's, an, it's a very iterative process finding that path. But every day there's more resources and more opportunity for people who are transgender and who need to transition to get there. I hope this is not inappropriate to say, and you tell me if you think it is, but having known you first as a man and then meeting you later as a woman, it is like night and day. When I met you as a man, you were not a happy person. Yeah. You really weren't. I mean, you, were, you weren't 
yeah. mean or anything. No. <laughs> you know, you you just you you were you just were very. I, I don't even have the words. You just didn't seem like a happy person. And when I met you as a woman, and I didn't know that you were the person who had been a man. I it wasn't until we were having lunch one day, and suddenly it clicked. It's like, oh my god, <laughs> wait, you're him. It was him. <laughs> And today, just to see you shine, I mean, it's, it's, it's really wonderful. It's really, really wonderful. Well, thank you. It's good feedback to get. I mean, it's a hard thing to get, too, to, to that perspective, because it was, there's just so much pain attached to those 50 years. There's just so much depression and pain and feeling of living a false life and, you know, having so many relationships, really important relationships in my life built around that projection of me as Stephen and knowing that there was a, you know, a complete hollowness to that ultimately and wanting not to hurt people who I loved, but having to own that hollowness was the hardest thing of all. And I mean, it led me to the brink of suicide myself. I just couldn't find a way to be letting so many people down but I couldn't live another day as Stephen it just was not something that I could do so yeah I was profoundly depressed and, and unhappy and I haven't had a day of depression since <laughs> I, that's no exaggeration I haven't I believe you I yeah. absolutely believe you Chloe can you tell me about a time when you thought I can't do x or I can't do fill in the blank or if I try to do fill in the blank, that the consequences would be so great that it just wasn't worth trying. And I can say that again if, if I didn't say that clearly. No, that's, I mean, I, I wish there was just one answer. There's multiple, multiple answers. Okay. I mean, my whole book, Selfish, is because that's what I got thrown at me, is how can you be so selfish? How can you do this to other people? And before people verbalized that, it was all too clear in my own mind that, you know, this will take an enormous you know, amount of effort to achieve and I won't be able to do it myself and who can I reasonably expect to, to help me through this when I'm going to be essentially, my feeling was letting people down, you know, breaking really strong commitments to, to people that cared and depended on me and were, you know, children in some cases. I, there were just so many cases where I thought, no, this is, you know, it's just simply not worth it which is why I waited 50 years. I mean, that was part of it. There's, you just keep coming around to the blank wall. There's just no other thing you can do but be yourself. And to be yourself means you got to own this. you got to deal with it. But yeah, time and time and time again, it's like, no, I can't. I actually can't transition. That's not something I can do. And even well into the transition, I'd be around other people who were transitioning and having extraordinarily hard times of it. And I just would like, I want to just go and, and hide somewhere. I don't even want to be part of this because, you know, their suffering is my suffering too. They're feeling it more than I am, but that's probably for me down the, you know, down the stretch. Or, I don't know. It just felt like a very, very hard process with very little support and an awful lot of opposition coming from people who loved you dearly saying, don't do this. So yeah, there was no easy way to take the next step at any one time. But that, there were some wonderful next steps. I mean, there were times that were, I don't know, transformational. The day the, the, sh the company came to pick up all my boy clothes. 
the Salvation Army, I said, send a truck. And they brought a truck and I had bags full of a whole lifetime of boy clothes, of suits and shirts and ties and God knows what. I was so happy to see the back of that truck disappear. It was like, get me out of these prison clothes. Just send them away. And, you know, nice to think that some actual man could wear them and get some use out of them. I didn't want any money for them. I didn't want nothing just to have them out of my sight. This next question, in a way, you've just answered it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> sure. No, no, it's, 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 it's a wonderful transition because you, you might have another example or something else. That is there a, some place in your life where you decided to push on anyway, even though gender expectations or gender norms told you not to? So many. I mean, certainly as a parent, the thing that used to bother me so much initially as a, as a then a dad was how little fathers get brought into the conversation about child rearing. They just, the whole conversation's about moms, moms and children, moms and children, moms and children. And it used to drive me nuts. What about dads? And I was very, very invested in, in the upbringing of my children. And I, I'm sure I didn't do as much as my wife, but I certainly gave it my best shot. The whole system's not structured for guys to do as much as they, they ought to be doing. But, you know, I was managing director of a branch office of a major American corporation in Durban, South Africa. And as managing director, I was the boss. And at five o'clock every day, I would tell them, I'm going home at five to give my baby son his bath. That's what I do. South Africa is a very patriarchal country. And I'd be in these big meetings with all these people. And I'd say, it's five o'clock. And I would just get up and they would look at me like I was out of my mind. But there was no hesitation. I was absolutely, you know, without question, what was important to me was to get home and be with my son and give him that bath and be part of his evening. And I always was the one who put the kids to bed and read them stories. And so many of those things that were just, to me, non-gendered parts of being a parent, I found were gendered. They were so, you know, set up against, sometimes by the women, they did not want the men in that space, but I'm sure that's just the way we've all been conditioned. But, you know, again and again, I would find myself at, you know, groups where you were supposed to be with your children, and it was essentially moms and tots. There, I was always the one and only father there. <laughs> but, you know, that was okay. I wasn't going to go away. I wasn't going to sort of walk back that feeling. I felt that's, you know part of who I am and it's going to be a big part of who I am and it always will be and that's just me. Is there something that you would like just regular people to start doing now to make a change around gender issues? Yeah, this is a really hard question because I'm angry about it and I don't quite know what to do about that anger. My anger comes from never having been a girl and seeing how much women put up with the crap that comes our way. And, you know, it's all about choosing battles and it's a survival skill. Women have to do that because there's just an avalanche of sexist material, sexist attitudes, discrimination, you know, objectification, you name it. It's a very long list. It's an avalanche or a tidal wave, if you will, that just doesn't stop. And I just get myself exhausted sometimes. I'm so outraged and angry at what is thrown at women that I often, often want to just sort of shake the women and say, you know, scream, do something, don't just accept this. 
but I know that they have to. They can't sort of continue to fight every single battle. This is not something that any one person can do. So that's the space I'm in, and it's it's just again and again and again on a daily basis looking with essentially fresh eyes as a woman at the way the world treats women and even thinks about women. If there's anything I would like people to do is to get back a little bit into that really uncomfortable space and be a little more outraged and demand accountability from men. You know, if you love us, if you love humanity, if you if you even have any real commitment to human dignity, God damn it, get in there and do something about it. Be in those spaces. Stop just sort of turning your back on gender-based violence saying it's a women's issue. It's absolutely not. You know, men can speak to men in ways that women don't get listened to. Men can hold men accountable and they're not doing it. They're not doing it nearly enough. And it's not just because it's their wives and daughters and sisters and mothers that are being the victims of violence. It's We're not instrumental in this. It's just we're dignified human beings. You have, speaking to men, an obligation to make dignity universal, to not just say that's a women's issue. It will be hard. It will be incredibly hard. Men will push back against men. You know, this is not what we do. It's men to men. It's what we have to do if we're going to change this paradigm. I, I get the feeling that we've kind of, I mean, there's always more to do, but it's sort of, it's kind of like we've done way more than we ought to have done to make the claim that we're dignified human beings, that we're deserving of being treated with love and respect. We don't have to be saying this over and over and over again to men or to women who elect men to who are known to be sexist and misogynist and others who put up with these men. We have to change that paradigm. We have to get to a place where we're holding everybody accountable to each other, to respect each other, care about each other, be compassionate to each other, to collaborate with each other. All of the things I've just said are very feminine things. And I think that gets to the, the underlying theme that feminine is not a bad word. Mm-hmm. And feminine modes of organization, of politics, of, of being in the world are not some subject, subservient way of being. It's not like, you know, it's really about power and money, dear. You know, we'll talk about that other stuff on the side. I, you know, I'll give just a, a, an aside on that. I've been teaching ethics since 1998 at five different universities as an adjunct in the, in the evening. And my classes, without exception, have been, you know, as much as 90% female, but often you know, way more than 75% female, never less than 75% female, what is that saying? I mean, it's not a statistically significant survey, but it certainly is anecdotally important to me that, you know, the the guys will say, well, we have to do economics. You know, we have to do political science, and I'm being a little bit silly about it, but they are making clear decisions about what's important in their master's degree education, and the women are making really different decisions. And I think there's a lot more there than what we're dealing with right now. The, the, the decisions are being made that are going away from the space where we connect with each other, that we own each other's common humanity, that we make decisions based not on what's best for my self-interest, but that's actually what's best for humanity. 
this is what my classes are trying to be about. And why aren't the men there? So I'm, yeah, I'm dealing with anger issues right now. And I don't quite know the way out of that. And I'm not sure I even want to know the way out of that. I feel like I'm, I'm just going to hang on to that. I understand. Mm. I understand. That's the end of my formal questions. And now I'd say, Chloe, is there anything that I didn't ask about that you'd like to say? Well, I think you've done a really good job of asking important questions. They're, they're really, you know, covered a lot of really important points. I guess I'd almost like to stop talking about gender as gender and actually having a conversation about dignity. It's mm. not even there right now. It's become sort of this, you know, rhetorical flourish that nobody really talks about anymore. I think gender would just be naturally, a, a, you know, part of the package if we were to actually talk about does dignity matter? If it matters to us, as most people will say it does, then why do we do what we do? Why do we treat some people as being of lesser dignity or no dignity whatsoever? Why do we consider people as being instrumental to what we're about? Why do we use people? Why do we manipulate situations in our favor? We know those answers. We know that you know the, the paradigm now is self-interest. It's about everybody gets ahead. It's about competition, competition, competition. It's so male. And you know, I'm, that sounds like a, you know an angry feminist. Well, maybe I am. But we've had an entire history, the entire, really, with a, with a few exceptions of a few small tribes here and there. This has been patriarchal history throughout the millennia, and look where it's got us. It's gotten us pretty far in many, many ways, but I think it's just about run its course. I think there's a time for revisiting an entirely different paradigm based at least in, in equal measure on collaboration, not always assuming that it's, you know, it's everything is about self-interest and maximizing self-interest, even opening up the conversation to the possibility of altruism doesn't even come up right now. It's like, oh, that's what you do with, you know, that's the sort of fluffy stuff on the side. If you want to be a do-gooder, then that's fine. No, that's what it means to interact with other human beings. You have a fact that people sacrifice so much to bring you up and you're the product of so much love and investment by so many people and yet you translate that all into you know i'm going to get ahead and screw everybody else what well, that's so perverse that's so fundamentally flawed we're at a stage where we're being challenged to evolve as a society or die as a society, as a civilization. Global climate change is one very strong symptom of that. If we don't change the way we think about the world, and I think inject a very big piece of feminine thinking into those formulas, we're not going to be able to make that transition. We have to understand that having a different sensibility around fem more feminine ways of thinking is an okay thing, <laughs> and that it actually might shed some light. I mean, that's radical stuff. And the fact that I even acknowledge that as radical stuff is such a sad comment. Why is it that we have to be claiming the space for women's w w sensibilities as, you know, something we even have to defend? It's, it's how society's cohered forever. It's just not how decisions have been made. Thank you. I, I love what you just shared. I, 
one last question from that. And you very well may not have an answer. I don't know if there is an answer or at least an answer at, especially having been a man in the past. What do you think or what is the best way to engage men as allies and to engage men as partners as we tackle these kinds of issues? Well, I'll be, I'm, I'm going to play a, a slightly um, semantics pushback with you a little bit. And that you've said a couple of times that when you were a man, I don't I'm, think I I'm, was ever a man. I'm sorry. I, 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 I apologize. When you, so, I, don't, I don't mean that's what people think. No, no, no. Actually, yeah. I'm really glad you raised yeah. that up. What, what should I have said? Can you when help me? When you were me? embodied as a man. Thank you. I, I think that's I, probably the best way to capture the feeling of what it feels like now. Uh, Chloe, I sincerely apologize. It, I, not I'm, needed. I'm, well, no, uh, no. I, I'm not practiced and no, I, I appreciate I really really appreciate knowing how to say this so yeah. when you were embodied as a man right you must have had some sort of insights or did you ha- do you have any insights from the time that you were embodied as a man about how we can engage men today as partners and allies because I'll, I'll just as yeah. saying that the kind of the good news is that there are some amazing men out there who are doing oh, gosh, great yeah. work in yeah. this area. Like I do not want to come across as saying that that is not true because it is not true. Yeah. <laughs> but how do we engage wider? If you have thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Well, it's, it's again, it's an odd thing for me to couple with, but I've used some other examples that didn't seem to be obvious segues. Um, I used to work a lot in anti-corruption. As, you know, as a consultant to the World Bank, I did work for USAID, and you know, <laughs> the corruption problematic, as it was described, was all about greedy people pursuing money and power, and you know, we were all just a complete dead loss. If you know, people could get away with stuff, they would, and you know, the human race is something that has to be constrained, otherwise it will go, you know, down the slippery slope to God knows what ruin. It's such a negative view of humanity that's so prevalent right now. And I kept sort of wanting to push back and say, what about the people of integrity? What about those people on the other side of the coin that we never talk about? We, we put so much emphasis on corrupt behavior and say, this is what humanity is about. And we know we simply don't talk about people of integrity. They're just not recognized. They're just simply not there, even though... Everybody knows people of integrity. Everybody knows people in their lives that have been remarkable exemplars of virtue, of commitment, of principle. We have a society that almost never talks about that. And I think that's the invitation to men and women who are committed to human dignity is to recognize those leaders, to open up a space for that conversation, for building in a real demand for that kind of secular moral accountability. I have to just, as an aside here, be stunned yet again that we have, you know, the the masters of the largest international development fund in the world, USAID. It's the biggest bilateral, biggest amount of money. They have never had an ethicist on their staff. They've never even had an ethicist as a consultant. They just do not deal in any express and explicit way with trying to understand the moral dimensions of this and then holding themselves accountable for those decisions from a secular moral perspective. This is the invitation to make that change happen, is to put these things on the table, 
to have the conversation about universal dignity, to have the conversation about why we really must and really ought, using a good moral word, to address poverty, why we really ought and must address gender inequalities, why we really must and ought to deal with conflict. Again, another aside, this was a very funny experience. I was one of three candidates to be the director of the School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. And I, you know, I'd come from a strong background at that time of doing a lot of work in conflict studies. And that was really the hot thing then working with, you know, a lot of really leading thinkers in that space. And I remember going there with, again, I was one of the three finalists. I knew that. I, it was a lovely trip out to San Diego. They put me up in this beautiful guest house. I was feeling very special. And I spent a day, be, I had to do this big presentation to the assembled faculty and staff. But the day before that, I went around and talked to a lot of the, the faculty members and the administrators. And I was struck so much by two things, one of which is these are some of the leading thinkers in conflict studies but I've, you know, I've read these people's works and they were all there in that one space and it was really impressive. They had managed to gather this many people of that caliber together. But, <laughs> there's always a but, the but was there wasn't a single person there that would define themselves as somebody doing peace studies. Every single one of them completely self-identified as a conflict specialist. So I kind of just went into that major plenary saying, you know, if you get me here, things are really going to change because we're actually going to be what the title of the school says. We're going to become a school of peace studies because that's a discipline that needs to happen. It's not like we're going to, you guys are all going to lose your jobs because conflict's a part of that. But there needs to be a rigor about peace studies, just in the same way that there needs to be a rigor about, and not just rhetoric, about human dignity. Because all of the human rights infrastructure depends on human dignity. Everything depends on human dignity. And if we're, we're not going to take that seriously, we're not going to change. Chloe, thank you so much. I so appreciate you coming here and sharing your thoughts. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender, experience, and perspective. I'm your host, Amy Breslow. Your Own Voice is produced by your host with IT support from Alex Moreno and is registered by ProtectRight. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thank you for joining us today. I'll be back in two weeks with the next episode. Until then, take care and be well.